In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying um, from chapter 6 in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, last time we studied uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, and um, we had uh, Jehoram uh, and Jehoshaphat uh, defeat the Moabites with the help of Elisha the prophet. Um, and then Elisha performed several miracles. One of the miracles was uh, multiplying oil um, for a widow. And then another one is he raises the son of another woman. Uh, and then the famous story of Naaman the Syrian, who is the commander of the army um, for the Syrian army. And he comes and uh, Elisha tells him to bathe in the Jordan River and he is cleansed from his leprosy. Um, those were the main points that we covered um, last time. <coughs> So we'll start with chapter 6. It says, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Or if you remember, what did we say? Who who are the sons of the prophets? Do you remember? It's a community of um, student prophets. Yeah. So they're like the apprentice prophets that are that are learning. Elisha is like the master prophet, right? So they're saying there's not enough space for us to dwell together. Um, please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. Okay, so they wanted to build like dwelling places for themselves. So Elisha said, uh, so he answered, go. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So they're cutting down the trees to make like the dwellings. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So he had borrowed this axe from someone, and now the axe is sank to the bottom of the river, and so, you know, he's not going to be able to return it. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Last time we, we mentioned how, like previously, um, the scripture was focusing a lot on like the, the miracles of Elisha in terms of like war and politics and things that were like very grand scale. But then it focused on these very personal things. So, you know, we, when we speak about Naaman the Syrian, it's a very personal miracles affecting this one man, um, the widow with the oil and the other woman whose son was raised. Like these were very personal. Like God is using, like he's, he's doing these miracles both on like a grand scale affecting like geopolitics. And he's also, you know, caring enough to, to, to look to the, to the very small things, the things that are only affecting individual people. And it tells us something about God's love and his awareness of our condition and what we are facing and going through. It is not that just he cares about these big things that maybe um, affect the entire church or the entire world, but he's also um, f focusing on these very small things. I mean, here, the, the miracle was done simply so that this person who had um, lost an axe could return the axe again. It wasn't even like a life or death, right? Like it was just... Uh, Something didn't even need to happen, you know. It wasn't going to be the end of the world if the axe wasn't returned. But, but um, you know, God and Elisha were so careful that even the smallest thing like this, um, it, was, it was addressed. Uh <coughs> now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Okay, so what's happening? So Syria, the king of Syria is making like battle plans, okay? And Elisha, who is in Israel, right? So he's not, Elisha is not present there with the king of Syria. He is in Israel. He is going to the king of Israel and he's telling them, 
what the plans are of the Syrians. Okay? Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So what's happening? What is, what is it saying? What is the king thinking here? Any ideas? Oh, I think he thinks there's a spy. Yes, yeah. he thinks there's a spy. He's saying, how else is it possible for the Israelites to know exactly what we're doing and what we're planning? There has to be a spy. Of course, we know that there's no spy. God gave Elisha the knowledge of what the Syrians were doing, and he already communicated that to the king of Israel, and that's how they were able to, 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 to operate, right? There, so there was no spy. But the Syrians can't think of any other way that they would have known. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king. So he's saying there's no, none of, none of us are with the Israelites, none of us are spies. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And like the way this is very much like phrased like this way, it's like even the most private thing, even the, 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 the most secret thing is revealed to God, right? Like there's a verse saying like that all of us are naked before God. Like there is no, no one is able to hide himself or herself from God. There is no secrets that can be kept from him. And whatever it is that God wants to do with the, with the knowledge and the information that he has about what we are doing, he can choose to do that. He can go, he can arrange things in such a way so that like if someone is planning something wicked, though th that plan does not come to pass, right? Um, we, we can consider this also when we're thinking about intercession of the saints because, um, you know, people ask the question, it's like, well, when we're asking the saints to pray for us, in what way are they listening even to our prayers or they are, um, aware of our condition or can be involved at all in what we are doing. Well, if God is able to grant to Elisha this knowledge, even though he is not, you know, he is not present with the Syrians, even when he is still alive in the flesh, even when he is still on earth. I mean, you could imagine like, okay, if someone is in heaven, if you have a saint who's like in heaven, right, or angels, like you can say, okay, maybe they can see everything, or maybe, you know, it's easy. But this this is a man who's still alive on the earth. And even he, God gave this knowledge, right? Um, and so, so it's something for us to consider, like how God is able to give, you know, knowledge of what's happening on the earth to other people, or to just arrange, you know, and plan ahead of time based on what everyone is doing. So he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. So he's, he's so now the king of Syria is like, okay, Elisha is the one who is telling what we are doing. Let's bring him here. And he was told that he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Okay, so this place, Dothan, where Elisha was, okay, uh, he came and sent an army to besiege it, right, to attack it. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and a servant said to him, <coughs> Alas, my master, what shall we do? Right? So El Elisha and, 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 and the others who were with him were hemmed in, right? They were surrounded, and there was no way for them to escape. And so, of course, anyone in that situation would be very 
afraid of what was going to happen. They didn't have an army with them, right, to, to fight. So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the, mountains, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So there was the spiritual army that was surrounding them all along. And Elisha saw it, and he knew that it was there, but his servant did not see it, right? So the servant was afraid because all he saw was the earthly army like against them, and he didn't see the spiritual army that was there fighting on their behalf. And this really, um, uh, this really shows us why like some people um, have so much faith in God while others do not, right? Like when you see like the lives of certain people or the prophets or whatnot, you see like they are operating on like a different plane. They are, they are operating with a different knowledge, with a different understanding, with a different motivation, right? It's like they see before their eyes all the time the spiritual things. And because they see the spiritual things, they see the, 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 the angels working for them. They see God's and the Holy Spirit working for them. They see all the ways that God is protecting them and guiding them in their life. And so they have comfort. Like they live with comfort. They live in peace. They live with the idea that like God is with me and present with me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be stressed. I don't have to be afraid of the future because I trust that God is with me, because it's like with their spiritual eyes, they can see this army, like this, this spiritual army protecting them. So even if there is, um, you know, big challenges or enemies or things that are threatening them in one way or the other, they're still at peace, just like here. And we see this dichotomy between Elisha and his servant. Like, like the servant here represents kind of like the, the, the worldly person. The person who only sees with their senses, the person who can only see the threats around them, and, and then they become afraid and then they're paralyzed, like there's nothing that they can do. When he goes to Elisha and says, what are we going to do? There's all of these army around us. Whereas Elisha represents the, like the spiritual person, the person who doesn't, doesn't care about the, the, the army that, that is in front of him because he knows that the spiritual army that God is, is protecting them with is far, far more powerful. And I think this is a big part of what spiritual growth is about, like in our lives, is how to become more and more like Elisha in this respect and less and less like that other servant. To really believe that if, if God wants something, like, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Who can be against us? If, if, if God is for us, then there is nothing that is able to stand up against us. There's no, nothing that is able to stop us. Um, but then there's also the, the, the factor of like, well, when does God choose to work? You know, when does God choose to work? Even on many of these miracles that we see that Elisha did, um, let's say for the armies and whatnot, there was still suffering. There was still like, like God did not allow them to reach, to like, like, like God did not do the miracle so early on to where they didn't experience the threat, right? Like they experienced the threat. And once the threat was there and the threat was very real and they began to suffer, then God intervened. So God is showing them like, Yes, I could have stopped the threat from the beginning. Like, I could have made it so that the Syrian army didn't even show up, right? Like, like, and then you wouldn't have ever had any fear. You wouldn't have been worried about what could happen now that the Syrian army is here. But he allowed the Syrian army to come uh, right up to their border, right? Like, up to their gates. And then he, like, showed how he has authority over them. And in this way, even though maybe as human beings, we would have wished that the threat never even arose to begin with because that's more comfortable for us. 
But what will strengthen our faith is something like this, is you see the threat and then you see God working at, you know, for you on your behalf. That's what's going to increase the faith of any believer, not that the threats are just eliminated prior to even you being aware of them. Okay, so this is a very important and very famous like story um, in the scripture um, to like meditate on and think about how like in our own lives God is present all the time. In what ways is God working for us, even though He is invisible? And growing in our faith means to be able to identify that He is there all along, right? And that's the other thing is that it is not that God sent this army in that moment, right? Like it says here, what? Um, He says, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It's like Elisha sees this army all the time. It's like the army's always there. Uh, it's not like the army just showed up when, when that happened. It was always there, right? And it was just a matter of seeing it, being aware of it. Like God is present with us all the time, but maybe we are not aware of him. Maybe we are not really focusing on him so much because we are just focusing on the problems or the threats against us. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Okay, so, so the people now are coming uh, against them, and they have been made blind. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So he's like fooled them. He told them, This isn't the way you want to go. There's another way you want to go. And he led them away from where they were and uh, to the city of Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and, and there they were inside Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the capital of Israel. Now when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? So this army that was coming to attack them became blind. He led them to like... The, the center of power of Israel, where all of the armies of Israel were, where all like everything the capital was, so they're going to be completely outnumbered there, okay? And then when they got there, uh, God allowed them to see again. Like he led them right into like, like the, the den of the enemy, okay? When, when the king of Israel now, seeing that this has happened and that this big army, these enemies of Israel, the Syrians, have come now directly into like their midst, he's saying, shall I kill them? Now it's time. Like they're, 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 they're going to be our victims. But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So why? Why, why go through all of this just to let them go? What do you think? He didn't want violence? Yeah, and he wanted like to show act of mercy and uh, actually to embarrass the other king. Okay. Like he came to kill us, but we actually fed your people when we have the power to kill them. Okay, so he wanted, he wanted Syria to know that we had the upper hand on you and we had the ability to kill you, but we chose to show you mercy. Because ultimately, <coughs> what he, is, he wants is he wants peace with Syria here, right? <coughs> Also, and this is a theme that we see throughout, even in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, a lot of people say, well, 
the Old Testament, the Gentiles are the bad guys, right, in everything. The Gentiles are always the enemies of Israel. The Israels are, Israelites are always the good guys. And God is always working with the Israelites to kill the Gentiles, right? Like that seems to be, to a large extent, the theme that we see over and over. But actually, God was wanting to save the Gentiles too. He was wanting to make himself known to all the world, right? And he was going to make himself known through the Jewish people, right? It was through the Hebrew people, through the Israelites, there came the prophets and, of course, ultimately the Messiah. But it was through him, through them, that all of the world would know about God, right? That was the plan. But the Gentiles also were a big threat, right, to the Israelites. So on the one hand, God wants to protect the Israelites from the Gentiles, which is where we see all kinds of wars and things happening. But he also wants to preach to the Gentiles so that they would believe, so this is a means where God is showing himself. He's showing his power, what he's able to do. He's showing his love, like he's giving an act of mercy. So he's sending a message to the Syrians, to the king of Syria. And he's saying, we could have destroyed you, but we chose not to, so leave them alone and contemplate on this. Like, think about it. What does this mean for you? Like, can you stand up against such a people who has a God that is able to do this? You know, and sometimes we... We think ourselves so powerful that we are able to stand up against God. We're able to, to, to rebel against him, to fight against him, to, 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 to in our own cleverness, find a, a means by which we can get what we want, uh, even if it is not what God wants, right? And so, so here God is showing that there is no one who can overcome him, right? You want to send armies, you want to send whatever it is, there's no way you can overcome me, right? And I'm just showing you a very like small taste of what is it that I'm able to do. <coughs> then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian readers came no more into the land of Israel. Right? So it worked, at the time at least. There were no more raids after seeing what had happened. Right? Even though the army was not killed, but they realized, like, how are we going to stand uh, up against this? And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So... After some time, they went back to the old ways of fighting. They came to fight against Samaria. <coughs> and there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. So they, they besieged the city so long that they cut off all the supply chain of food um, entering into the city. So the prices of all of the food uh, went up, went way up right? So expensive to where the people could not afford to eat and they were starving, okay? And they besieged the city for so long that essentially all the people were going to die, right? And that was their strategy. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? So like he, the king is like, the people are coming to the king and they are complaining to him and they're saying help us the famine is too 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 strong for us like we're, we're starving we're going to die and the king's response is how can i help you and what what power do i have to be able to help you right um if the lord does not help you where can i find help like god is the one who has to help like we all should seek help from god and not find help in man and this is also an important principle sometimes we see that the solution or the savior of the world you know <coughs> is or, or for a certain situation, is not really a God, but it is a person, right? We go to that person 
that we trust. We go to that person that we think is going to be able to solve the problem instead of going to God. And maybe this person has a lot of power. And maybe this person it has, you know, ways of, of helping or doing things. But ultimately, even such a person who is normally a very powerful person, like the king, right, he, he can't do anything. And he's saying, the only one who can help us is God. How often do we turn to God first um, and seek his help? And even as we are seeking the help of other people, we seek it with the idea that God will work through them. Like ultimately, God is the one working right in everything and he can use different people on different situations to work but god is the one working then the king said to her what is troubling you and she answered this woman said to me give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow so we boiled my son and ate him and i said to her on the next day give your son that we may eat him but she has hidden her son it's a very like grotesque uh, thing but it shows you the desperation of the people at the time. Like, imagine that the people are so hungry and starving that they're eating their own children. And that these two women agreed together that we're going to eat our children. They ate the child of one one day, but then the, the woman who loves her son doesn't want him to die hid him so that she, he would, she would not be eaten the next day. So it's like a very, like, dis like desperation, like really, really despair. Like, maybe more than any other verse in the bible when i read this verse it shows like the the depth of human despair that this you're resorting to this okay um so so they're telling this to the king now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and as he passed by on the wall the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body why is that important what does that mean What is sackcloth? Sign of like mourning and, and But what is sackcloth? What is it? It's like Thank cloth you. that they make sacks out of. <laughs> right? So it's like this very thick, rough cloth. You know, if you can think if you ever seen like burlap kind of material, kind of something like that. Like something very uncomfortable, right? So people when they put on sackcloth, it it was a, a means of uh, like petitioning God, saying, kind of like how we fast to petition God, like we are denying ourselves comfort. We are, we are, we are, we are saying to God, like I care about this petition that I'm making so much that I'm willing to suffer for it. Like I want you to, to I want, I want my cries and my petition to, like, to be heard by you. Pay attention to what I am saying, kind of. So the idea that the king was wearing sackcloth on his body showed that the king was you know, mourning over all that was happening to the city and um, and for the sake of all the people as well. Because kings, of course, they normally wear like the most, you know, exquisite clothing, right? Um, so, so he had this sackcloth on his body. Then he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. So why would he say that? Why would he, why would he like... After, after the anger that he felt from seeing these two women who are trying to eat their own children, and he felt very upset, and he tore his clothes, right? Why would he say this? Why would he, like, accuse Elisha? <coughs> the one who told him not to kill the people in the first time. Okay, so, the fir so before the previous thing, maybe if they had killed that army, 
right, when they had the chance to kill them, then the army would not have been able to do this now. Right? Okay, good. Why else? Because he's blaming God for what, what's happening, and so he can't, forgive me, but kill God, but he can kill his prophet. So it's, in his eyes, Elisha is the representative of God. Yeah, and like he's going to say, well, Elisha, you can make it rain whenever you want. You can make it stop raining. You can raise, you know, you can raise people from the dead. You can b multiply oil. You can, like, you can do all these things. And, and he knows for sure that Elisha can, can do this, right? He's done greater things, okay? Um, so why is it, Elisha, that you are not acting? Like, why, why are you just allowing all this? If you see the suffering of the people, why are you not doing something about it, okay? And, and, and yes, it is a type of blaming God, right? Like, we, we blame God sometimes when we, when we are very upset with him because of something that he has allowed or not allowed, something that we feel is right that should be allowed or should be done or should be corrected, why is it that the innocent people suffer? Why is it that God did not do something that I really, really wanted him to do, even if I, even after I asked him repeatedly for, for, for so much, so many times, for years I asked, and he didn't give it to me? Why is it? Doesn't he have the power to do so, right? And of course, the answer is yes, he has the power to do so. And what is the reason that he doesn't? You know, what is the reason that he doesn't come here and he, he comes in and he, um, he stops this insanity, right, that's going on and the suffering of these people, right? And so it's difficult for us as human beings to understand God's will and what he expects to get out of different things that he allows to get, right? We're going to see how this problem is going to be resolved, right? And, and definitely like it shows the hand of God working. But then there's always the question is, well, why didn't you do it sooner? Like, why did you wait until now to do it? Like, if you had the solution all along, why couldn't you have done it a month ago? You know, why couldn't you have done it before that these women had to eat their children? Why? Right? And there's no good answer. Right? Like, what answer do we give when, when, we, uh, when we ask God, why are you allowing me to suffer so much? And couldn't you have ended the suffering earlier? There is some reason, right, in the, in the mind of God that he knew we needed to go through this process. We need to go through this, like, broken road um, and, 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 and our role in it as Christians, sometimes if there's absolutely nothing in our hand to do is just to pray and ask God for, for patience, to ask him so that we can be long-suffering, that we can be like joyful as much as we are able in the midst of very difficult circumstances and trusting that God is working, right? And this is very hard. But all those people who grew in faith to very high stature of faith, you will find that it was born out of suffering. Right, it wasn't born just out of blessing. It wasn't born just out of like God is giving me everything that I want all the time whenever I want it, and that's the life that I've lived, and then somehow I also have very great faith. Usually not, right? Usually the people who have very great faith are those who have borne great burdens and who have gone through great suffering. And I've seen how God can work and act in the midst of great suffering to to realize, right? Like like we were saying before, like this army is besieging the city, and it was only then that we see the army of God, right? And if we hadn't seen the, the Syrian army come and attack, then we wouldn't have noticed the army of God. So when we ask God to grant us faith or patience or any virtue, right, maybe what we are asking him for is some suffering. We're saying, grant me some suffering. Um, I'm willing to suffer because I value the virtue that I want to attain more than my personal comfort. So the next time you ask God 
for some kind of virtue, be aware of maybe what you're asking. You're asking that God remove some comfort from you so you can attain the virtue he wants you to have to purify you, okay? So here, no one knows why. Why are you allowing this? And there's a lot of human reasoning that would point the blame toward Elisha, saying, well, we could have killed these people before. Why, why did you allow them to live, you know? And again, what is the answer? Only God knows what would have happened if they had uh, if they had killed them at the time. Maybe things would have been very different, right? But in what way and for what purpose? Again, God only knows. But Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messengers came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of, mur of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. Right, so he's like sending sending someone to go and to kill Elisha. But Elisha is aware of it. He knows that this is happening. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Right? Like if God is gonna allow this pain, like why even maybe to the extent people say, Well, why should I even worship him? Like why 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 should I pay, pay him any heed if you know, like I feel like God's presence with us when he is working for us, when he is fighting for us, when he is doing good for us. When it's like, yes, I worship God and God is great, right? But if God is allowing misery, right, where is he then? Why is he with it? Why should we pay him any heed at all? Why should we worship him at all? Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You know, this is the same Lord that had protected them and saved them many, many, many times from before. But now in the midst of this great suffering that the whole, the whole people are experiencing, Right? Where are you now? And again, this is a test of faith. And the only way that we know the magnitude of our faith is through testing. Because there's no way for us to know. Like if you ask any of us, like, do you have faith? We'll probably say, yeah, I, I have faith. Right? But to what extent? Right? What has to happen to break you? Like you look at Job, for instance, nothing broke him. Nothing. Like the, the most, the, the most, the hardest imaginable possible, like, things that could happen to any human being happened to him like there wasn't there wasn't anything that was left out right like there wasn't anything could have happened that didn't happen everything happened everything bad happened to him that could happen to a person right and yet he still maintained his faith throughout this is why when satan was speaking to god about him and god said look at my servant job there is no one like him there's no one like him right because god knew but no one else knew like maybe if anyone had looked at Job before, he'd say, yeah, this is a good man. He's a righteous man. But to what extent was his faith? It was only discovered in like the fire of adversity. That's when how it was discovered, right? Like, you know, you when you take metal, like alloyed metal, which is like a mixture of different metals, and you want to know how pure is the metal, right? Like how pure is it? What do you do? Just maybe by looking at it, you can't tell. You melt it, right? You melt it, and then you separate all the different metals that are in it, and then you see what's left, right? This is how you purify metal. You melt it and you get rid of all of the junk and you keep the pure metal, the pure gold, let's say, that's left. That's what you want, right? You want the pure gold. And this is how God purifies, is he melts, right? He melts away the things that are uh, broken, the things that are obstacles, the things that are, are, are defiled, the things that are wicked in us. And how does he do it? Oftentimes, he does it through adversity, because it is through adversity that we are forced to change our focus because we, we feel so helpless. We feel like o only God can be the one, 
to to save me or to help me right here in his anger right the king here he is saying you know um this calamity is from the lord is from the lord this is now when we begin to say god is actually the source of evil and there's a big difference between saying god allowed evil versus god is the source of evil it's not the same god allows evil means that evil exists because free will exists we have free will we can choose sin we can choose evil right we can choose evil and god allows us to choose evil because if he didn't allow us to choose evil then we would be like robots like we wouldn't have any ability to choose anything we couldn't we would all be forced to choose only the right thing every time right which is not free will at all so by by being given free will we have the ability to choose evil and by being able to choose evil that evil is now going to affect other people right it's going to affect the world around me because i have i've now can perform evil in the world and so if god wants to honor our free will really then he has to permit that right so he's permitting it he's permitting evil to exist in the world even you know the first sin that brought about all of the disaster that came afterward it was permitted by god it wasn't desired by god it didn't it was not it was not done by god it was done by us right so god is not the one who sends calamity calamity exists in the world but what god does is he allows calamity meaning would it have been possible for God to prevent all of this from happening? Yes, he could have prevented it. Why didn't he prevent it? Well, there's a reason. Uh, maybe we don't know the reason. He chose, and he said what? That he will turn all things to good. This is in Romans chapter 8. Like, like all things work together for good for those who are called by God, who love God and are called according to his purpose. So, so not only does he allow the calamity, but he turns the calamity into something beneficial for us in some way. That doesn't mean that it takes away all its pain. Think about death itself. Like maybe we can say like the biggest calamity that that came to the world that was unintended from the beginning was death. Death was never intended, right? Because God is the source of life. Everything he creates, right, will will, will exist forever because it is supported by him. Like death is the sign of a malfunction, right? Like there's a malfunction that's happened. Like you have something that God created in perfection you would never expect that thing to cease existing or to, to, to be broken down somehow. The brokenness of it came because of the sin, came because of the personal choice of us as humans to sin against God. That's how the brokenness entered. That's how death entered. So how then, and the whole story of salvation is, how is God going to take this death, which is the worst thing imaginable that ever happened, how is he going to take that and turn it into something good? And so that's the story of the resurrection. He says, death is still going to happen. Like you're still going to die because that's a consequence of your choices. But now death is going to lead to something completely different than before. Whereas before death would lead to eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal suffering. Now death is going to lead to eternal life. So he took the death and that's why he, like King David, when he said death, where is your sting? Like you used to have a sting. You used to have power. Right? People used to be afraid of you because they knew that when death came, there was, there was just destruction. There was just suffering. Whereas now, death has lost its power. The death, even now when it comes, it's kind of like a tickle. Like it's, it's not like a, it, it doesn't have power like before. right? Because it actually, something not only does it not have power, but it can be actually desirable. 
as a as a cessation of suffering on the earth that people look forward to have spending an eternity with a god in heaven and that death is the door for that eternal life right so this is the way that god turns the the thing that was painful and 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 harmful turns it into something good so god does not send calamity god allows calamity and god can turn the calamity into something beneficial okay but it's not always clear what that benefit is right it's not always clear to us whenever a calamity is happening it's not always clear what it is where is the good that's coming from this calamity sometimes we um in time sometimes in time we look back at a situation and we understand we say now i understand why god he, he was protecting me from something or he he allowed it for some reason but there are other types of calamities that maybe we'll live the rest of our life and we have no idea what is it why is it right why is it that god allowed this and then it goes back to again it's like what do we believe do i believe that god is good and if he is good he cannot do evil and if he is good that means that he does not send upon me or allow even in my life something for my destruction but instead for good right this is where again the idea of faith comes in we have to believe in who he is and what he says even if we don't know clearly what is the direct answer to the question god why did you allow these people to suffer with this famine right why did you allow them to suffer and and even to the point of eating their children why <coughs> okay chapter seven then elisha said hear the word of the lord thus says the lord tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of samaria what does that mean He's saying everything's going to get really cheap everything's going to be cheap again meaning there's going to be plenty of food again and it's going to happen when tomorrow like not something that's going to happen in months or eventually no it's going to happen immediately and like this statement of what he's saying here nobody was going to believe like this is an unbelievable claim right saying that in one day even though the whole army of samaria is outside even though all the people are sorry the army of the syrians are outside all the people in the city are suffering so much where is even is going to food come from like like this statement was radical the other thing that's interesting is that when when he's saying this was the day that they came to him like there is no mention of course we don't know but there is no mention of them coming to elisha prior to this i'd be like hey elisha can you ask god to end this famine to end this inflation can you can you end the war like maybe they did we, we're not really sure because it doesn't say the only thing that says is that they came to elisha the king came to Elisha at the time when he wanted to kill him because he was so fed up with the fact that Elisha didn't do anything. But is it a coincidence that the same day that he came to Elisha, so angry and upset, wanting to kill him, that Elisha is saying tomorrow is actually going to be fixed? It doesn't sound like a coincidence, right? Like it doesn't sound like it just so happened that you came to me the day before all this was going to be resolved. It sounded more like... <coughs> Like we're actually coming to to in like we're 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 coming to God in some way, even the way that they came to God was like very like we want to kill the prophet or like they didn't. It's not like they're coming to him with like this kind of like nice request or or seeking God's will or making petition of God or anything like that. No, they're coming to kill the prophet, 
because the prophets, it's the prophet's fault. This is what they thought, right? But even this, even this, it's like God took this and took it as a petition, you know? Like even though, like, you know, when we say about, like in prayer, like it's okay to be angry at God in prayer. It's better to be angry at God in prayer than not to pray. It's better to, it's, it's better to yell at him than to stay silent, okay? Why? Because the goal of this is not blasphemy. The goal of it is to direct your feelings and, and your petitions to God. Meaning, even if you're upset with him, even if you feel like he, is, he hasn't done what you wanted, tell him so. Like, express yourself to him directly. Even if that expression is not like the typical, we're going to stand and we're going to do the things that we're supposed to do and all that. Right? Look, it's a real expression of how you feel. That is where you will find him. You will find him in the reality, not in the formality. Right? This isn't about formality. Prayer is not formality. Right? Prayer is real communication. And if just as you have a friend and you're upset with that friend and you're going to talk to them kind of harshly about what it is that they've done, talk to him. Be angry. It's okay. Right? And so I, I feel like the fact that this solution to the problem happened the very next day after they're coming to kill the prophet, okay? Then it's like God in his mercy, he took even this violent act that they were doing as being like, at least we believe that God could fix it, you know? Like we're upset because we think God could fix it and he didn't fix it, that even this expressed some kind of faith, you know? Like God is so good that he takes the most like, like the most meager thing that we have and he, he like makes it to be something far better than it really is. Kind of like when, 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 a, when a young child scribbles on a piece of paper and gives it to their parent and the parent is like, wow, this is the most amazing artwork. You know, it's like all we're offering him is meager, like nothing, like, like, like useless, valueless, right? You know, like I remember actually <laughs> when I, before I got married and had kids, I was working with a coworker and I went into his office and he had like a piece of paper with scribble on it like on his office and he hung it up on his wall. And I, I knew that this was like his daughter, right? And I was like, can I ask you like, and I was serious about this question because I didn't understand it at the time. It's like, why do parents value, you know, scribble on a paper so much? Like what, what about it is so, like that you're so proud of it that you want to put it up on the wall in your office? And he said, you know, he said, um, you know, children go for so long not being able to produce anything. And the moment that they can give you anything at all, you're so excited. Like they've, they've, they've achieved, like this is like their first achievement ever, right? And I saw, like I began, to, of course now I understand as a parent, uh, <laughs> but at the time I didn't. Um, like, like God wants us, the, the most, the smallest thing, like the smallest thing, kind of like in the scripture where it says like, even if you offer just a cup of cold water to an apostle, you will not lose your reward, right? If all you can give is just a cup of cold water, Right? Like God is f trying to find a reason to bless us. He's trying to find a reason to shower us with gifts and blessings and, and to, to be proud of us, even if what we offered is really just nothing. Right? That's what a father does. Right? That's, what a f that's what a loving father does, like a parent. Right? That's what he wants. He wants us, he wants to exalt us, right? even if we don't deserve to be exalted. And that's how I feel about this. Like even even the, s the, 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 the most ridiculous thing, we're coming to kill the prophet. Right? Even this, like God took it as, okay, tomorrow the famine will end. You know, because you at least came to me in some way.
So an officer, so right now, Elisha just said pretty much the prices are all going to drop tomorrow, okay, and everything's going to be great. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So this man, very logical man, maybe all of us would be this man, right, in this situation. Like, there's no way. Like, what are you going to do? How are you going to, even if God were to make windows in heaven and drop everything from the heaven directly to us, how is it possible that tomorrow all of this would be done? Okay. And so Elisha told him, you will see it, but you will not eat of it. Okay. And this also, like, it, it shows how the solutions that we can fathom and come up with in our mind, right? And we say, okay, like, I have this very big problem. What are the possible solutions? One, two, three, four, five. These are the solutions. And all the solutions seem like impossible. You know, like how, how even could it be possible that any of these solutions happen? But God comes up with some other thing completely out of nowhere that we had never even thought of a single time and, and how it all came together. And that's the solution that God was, was going to come up with. And that's what he's going to come up with here. Something that no one would have ever expected or thought, right, could be done, right? So when God wants to solve a problem, it will be solved. Like we struggle for a long time with various challenges and problems in our life. But that's not because God cannot solve it. But he has chosen not to yet for some reason. He says you can have it for a while. Like St. Paul with the thorn in his side. And St. Paul is asking God, remove the thorn. And, and God says, no, this is good for you. You need to have it. Right? Maybe it's not the answer we like. and Maybe not the answer we want to hear. But again... What would have been the alternative? Because Christ said to St. Paul, if you don't have the thorn, then maybe you will be exalted above measure. Maybe you will fall into pride. Maybe you will not even be able to continue your, your, your mission if you don't have this thorn. So in the end, the, 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 the end goal is good. The thing that God is doing is good, even as we as human beings don't understand it or don't like it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall only die. It was a good plan. They said, we're going to die here anyway. So if we go to the enemy, the worst thing they can do is kill us. Or maybe they'll let us live and we'll have food to eat. <coughs> and the way even it's said here shows you again the, the misery. We shall only die. Like death is now nothing to them. You know, maybe death is preferable. We can only die. There's nothing more they can take. There's nothing more that can happen. We're just only going to die, right? So either way, we're going to die. Maybe we'll have more luck with the Syrians than just sitting here at the gate. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. Right? So they've been here in the city with all this army around them and encampments all around. Right? And then they ended up going, like no one else, just them, went to these encampments and they realized the encampments were empty. Nobody is there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the, the, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. 
Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when the lepers, when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one of the tents and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. So these lepers, like they found like this treasure trove, right, of all the stuff, all the supplies, everything that was left. And so their first instinct is, yeah, we're going to eat, we're going to collect, we're going to take the gold, we're going to hide it, we're going to, like it's great. It's great for them, okay. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So after their initial shock, they started to think, you know what, this isn't right what we're doing. It's not right for us to reap the benefit of all of this ourselves, but instead we're going to go and share what is it this happened with all the people. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, we went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. So the king thought this could be a trap. Rightly so. You know, it's a trap. They're luring us out, and then when we go, they're going to attack. And one of his servants answered and said, Please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from, from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. So I said, what do we have to lose? If we don't go, we're going to die. And if we go and it's an ambush, we're also going to die. Kind of like the same reasoning that the lepers gave uh, before, is there's nothing that we can lose now. Right? There's nothing we can lose now. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. So they found that the Syrians had run away. They left behind all these supplies. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. So everything that Elisha had said the previous day about what would happen, happened. Okay, exactly as he said. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. Remember, he had said to him what? that you will see it with your eyes, but you will not eat of it, right? The man who doubted and said that how is this going to happen? Even if there's windows opening in heaven, how will it, how will it happen, right? So this is uh, what happened to the man is he was trampled because of the rush of people at the gate. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying two seas of barley for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then the officer had answered the man of God and said, Now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And, he's, and he had said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Okay. Then Elisha spoke to the woman 
whose son he had restored to life. So this was back in the last week's reading. Uh, remember, there was a woman whose son had died, and Elisha had, ra had raised him from the dead. Um, Elisha spoke to the woman, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. So God had revealed to Elisha that there was going to be a famine, and the famine would last seven years. And so Elisha talked to this specific woman, right? And he told her there will be a famine, so go and dwell somewhere else during this time. And so she went where? To the land of the Philistines, and she dwelt there for seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servants of the men of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Do you remember Gehazi? What did he do? He's the one who um, who went and took from Naaman the Syrian the reward uh, for for like he 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 lied about uh, Elisha uh, wanting the, a reward for some visitors and then he took the reward and then hid it and then Elisha struck him with uh, leprosy right he became yeah so Naaman this this is after Elisha cured Naaman the Syrian and Naaman wanted to give Elisha some rewards and. Elisha said no, but Gehazi didn't like that, so he ran after Naaman and he lied and told him we need some some garments and things from for some visitors that have come, and he got the reward. And then when he went back to Elisha, Elisha told him, because you have done this, the leprosy of Naaman was going to cling to you. Okay, And so he became leprous. We don't hear about Gehazi again until now. So if you, if you read the story from before, you might conclude that, like that's the end of Gehazi, like like that's okay. He he's a leper now, and that's you know maybe he he stopped following Elisha. He went and did his own thing, but what what here like what does it tell us to see that Gehazi is still he's still called the servant of the man of God, and he is still here. He repented, like he he didn't he didn't take what happened to him, and and be like okay that's it. Like I'm leaving and I'm upset and my life is 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 over, right? But he's in the house of the king, right? He's not with Elisha at this point. No, he's saying the serv. He, then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. So he's still the servant of the man of God, but the king is the one talking to him. Yeah. Isn't the same man that Elisha said, like God opened his eyes so he can see? It's the same one. Same one. Well, it, well it, it called him the servant of the man of God. It didn't use his name. So it could be the same one. Maybe it's a different one. But here it's specifically Gehazi. So, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that Gehazi is still in the picture. So he, he messed up. He got leprosy. You know, he had lied. But he still clung to Elisha. You could have imagined it working out a different way. Who maybe who are who who else does this remind us of? In the New Testament. Peter. Like Peter denied Christ three times, said, I don't even know the man, ran away 
at the time when Christ needed support the most, right? And, and, and yet, he repented and he stayed and he remained an apostle, right? And, and actually, that whole experience that he had was a means by which that he saw the mercy of God. Whereas an, the other example is Judas. Judas who messed up, but then he went and he hung himself, right? So one thing we learn about this, and one thing really that's highlighted in the scripture so much, is, is how God accepts repentance. There is nothing that is beyond repentance. There is nothing that, even if you have to face the consequences of your decision, and even if you have to face it the rest of your life, but that is, says nothing about if God will accept you again, right? God accepts those who repent, even if they made huge blunders. King David, huge blunders, huge failures that he made, and yet he continued. Actually, he continued to be king as well. And, and it was said about him that he is the man after my own heart, even after he committed adultery and murder. Okay, so, so if, 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 I if each person were to be like disqualified from serving God after they've made a mistake, then none of us could serve. None of us could be his children at all because we've all failed and we all fail all the time. Now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life. So, 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 sorry. So the king now, um, after the seven years where this woman had been living in the Philistines, with the Philistines, she came back because she wanted to have her property restored to her again. The land that she was living on, her house and all of that, she had been gone for so long that I guess other people came and they took it or it became abandoned or was absorbed. I don't know. Squatters. I don't know. Um, so, so, so she's coming to the king and be like, okay, I want my, my land back, right? So the king is saying, well, he wants to know more about Elisha. Elisha is the one who told her to leave and then to come back, okay? So now Gehazi is talking about Elisha. saying it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. So uh, the king gave her back everything. Not only that, but all of the produce, the, the proceeds of the field, so whatever had been earned from any harvesting that had been done on her land, it was given to her as well. Then Elisha went to Damascus. And Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Now what is very bizarre about this? Yes, so the, the Syrians are the enemies of Israel. They're the ones that have been causing all this problem, right, all along. And now it says Elisha went to Damascus and he went and visited with the, with the king. Why would he do so? Out of mercy? Actually, God commanded him to do so. If you remember, back before Elisha, when we were still talking about Elijah, after Elijah, uh, the scene that had happened with the priests of Baal and then Elijah ran away and he went to the Mount Horeb, and he heard the still small voice. After the still small voice, uh, God tells Elijah that certain things are he's going to do. One of them, he's going to appoint Elisha to be his successor. Another thing he told him to do is he's going to go and anoint what? King in Syria. 
Okay, so that was something that was going to happen much later, which is what we're going to see now. But it shows that the prophet of God is not the prophet only of the people of God. He is like the servant of all people, right? He's the servant of even the enemies of the church, right? Even the enemies of the church, even the enemies of God, he is sent to them. Just like who? Jonah the prophet, right? The reason Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites was because these are the enemies of Israel. But God is telling him, no, you are, you are my prophet. You are not a prophet of Israel. You are a prophet of God, right? And, I, and these are all my creation, right? And, and God makes that very clear to Jonah in the, in the, in the book of Jonah. When, when he was saying, look how much I care about these people, like, like when he gave him the example of the, the vine that grew and gave him shade, and then a worm came and consumed it, and Jonah's very upset about the vine, and 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 he, and then and and God tells Jonah, if you are upset about this vine that grew in one day and you know and is destroyed, how much more do I care about all of these multitude of people of the Ninevites, right? So it revealed again God's love and compassion for all people, not just for the Israelites, but even for the Gentiles and even for his enemies. Okay, so here God has sent Elisha to the enemies of Israel, but we're going to see why. Yeah. Reminds me of Sayyidina Amba Yusuf uh, because he he often says when asked about his responsibility, he will say that, you know, I wasn't appointed as the bishop at the time when I heard him say that, a bishop of the, of the Coptic people in the southern diocese of the United States. I'm, I'm not just responsible for Coptic people in this region. I am responsible of every soul whether or not they've even heard of the Coptic Orthodox Church. So I, it's just similar. He, he doesn't view his mission as, as a prophet to the Coptic people. He's, he, his mission is for everyone. Yes, and that's actually the reason he established the American Coptic Church, for that reason. That's right. <coughs> um, so so Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, the man of God has come here, and the king said to Haziel, take a present in your hand. Now, so th they are honoring the prophet. Like these same people were the ones who were trying to kill the Israelites. But when the prophet comes, they honor the prophet. They see that the prophet, he's like a special person, that he really does represent God. Like they're giving him honor. Okay. And he said, what? Inquire of the Lord by him saying, shall I recover from this disease? So Ben-Hadad is sick. Okay. And the king spoke to his, like, he's like the head, head of the royal court, Haziel, sent Haziel to Elisha, saying, ask him, uh, am I going to recover from the disease or not? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads, and he came and stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this disease? Okay, now remember Naaman, the Syrian, he was from here, okay? And of course, the, the story of what would have happened, what happened to Naaman the Syrian was well known. Naaman was leprous. He went to uh, Elisha. Elisha healed him. He came back to his homeland. Okay, um, so the Syrians they know that Elisha can heal. So, and again, Haziel was this like personal assistant, head of the royal court of the king. Okay. And Elisha said to him, "Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die." Okay, so, so what will happen is, and we'll see this, is that he will recover from his disease, but he's going to die by another means. Okay. 
Then he set his countenance in the stair until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, Because I know that the evil that you will do to the children of Israel, their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you shall dash their children and rip open their women with child. So what is he saying? Who is? The king of uh, Damascus. Who is the king? Hazael right now is the head of the royal court. And he is the messenger, the one who that the king sent to Elisha to ask him if he is going to be healed or not. Okay? So who but so who is the king now? Ben Hadad. But Ben Hadad is going to die. And who's going to be the king after him? Hazael. Okay? So so the man himself who's coming to, to Elisha, he is the going to be the king. And Elisha knows that he, that king, Haziel, is going to like harm the Israelites. And so Elisha is weeping like he is sad because he knows this. But he also knows that this is God's will. Because he, God told Elijah that this was going to happen. And he told him that he should anoint this man as the king. Which again, it says something. Like God is playing, uh, it's not playing, but... God, God's plans are very complicated, right? Like he's, 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 he, like e even what we see, it's like God is setting up this power against the Israelites, and then he goes to the Israelites and helps them defeat him, right? Like, why are you doing that? Like, like why? It's, it's like you're playing both sides. Again, God has an idea in his mind. He has something he's trying to accomplish. When God sets up the enemies of Israel, it's not because he wants to destroy Israel. It's because he wants to save Israel. And he knows that they will only be saved if there is some antagonistic force against them which forces them to turn to God. Just like that's the whole book of Judges is that. The whole book of Judges is the, the, the God sets up some enemy against Israel. They begin to enslave the Israelites. The Israelites cry out in repentance to God. God app appoints a judge who will be the leader of Israel so that they will defeat the enemies. And then they live in peace for some time and everyone's happy until the Israelites turn away from God again and the whole cycle repeats again and again and again many, many times, right? So God is the one who is setting up the enemies and the one who is defeating the enemies because in the end, the goal is the salvation of the Israelites. And if the Israelites need to be harassed in order for them to be saved, God is willing to harass them. He's willing to allow them to be harassed. But here, Elisha knows what is going to happen the way that Haziel is going to fight against Israel. So Haziel said, But what is your servant a dog, that he, he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over, Israel, over Syria. Okay, so he, he knows what is about to happen. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Haziel reigned in his place. So he assassinated the king. So this is why it said that he would recover from his disease, but actually he's not going to die from the disease. He's going to die by assassination. And this man, Haziel, who's like saying, how is it possible for me to do such a thing? He is the one who assassinated the king, and he's going to be the king after him. And actually, the, the way that he killed him by, by essentially suffocating him so that people wouldn't realize that this was an assassination, they would think that he just died of his disease. Okay? Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, 
Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. So now, to be this is to be careful here with the names, okay? Because there's multiple people in both kingdoms with the same name. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. So this is the northern kingdom. Remember, he had King Ahab, and then he had a son named Joram. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he had a son named Jehoram. Now, Joram and Jehoram are interchangeable. So sometimes each one of them could be called Joram, and sometimes they could be called Jehoram. Okay? So you have now two kings named Joram or Jehoram, okay, in the north and the south. Okay? He was, so referring to he, it's talking about um, the southern one. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, meaning he was a sinful king, just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. So the daughter of Ahab married the king Jehoram of the southern kingdom. And so the, 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 the idolatry, the idol worship that was being done in Israel was like now, you know, more predominant in the southern kingdom as well. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel, just as house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So again, the, the love that God had for King David, we see it here. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Edom was like, 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 like a, was being kind of ruled, even though it wasn't part of Israel, but it was like being ruled by the, the kingdom of Judah. So Joram went to Zaire, or Zair, and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled their tents. Okay, so this is the, the King Joram from the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah is the one who led this attack against Edom. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, raised, reigned in his place. So Ahaziah, the king of Joram in the south, becomes king. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, now this is the other Joram, the one in the north, okay? Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So remember, we had two Jehorams. The Jehoram in the south died, and, and the king that came after him was Ahaziah. So you have a Jehoram in the north, and you have Ahaziah in the south. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ataliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Omri was actually was the father of Ahab. Okay? And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Okay? Any questions about anything we talked about today? Okay. Glory be to God forever, man. You can pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessings in everything, and we ask that you guide us, and you protect us, and you keep us safe from the attacks of the enemy. Help us to learn, O Lord, the many valuable lessons that we can learn from reading your scripture, and from the stories of Elisha, and all of the other prophets, and how they worked, O Lord, for good, and how they were able to hear your word and put it into practice without hesitation. We ask, O oh God, for your blessing. We ask that you grant us the forgiveness of our sins and accept our sincere repentance. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.